As I mentioned in first service, by God's grace, we will still have the blessing of Emily in our midst, but Jillian's graduating, and we wish her the best as she goes on to graduate school. But we will miss her love for Jesus and her voice that she praises Him with. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings of this house to gather in your name. Thank you for Jesus, who has brought the good news of who you are to us and bridged the gap through the cross between our rebel earth and our home in heaven. I pray now, Lord, come and speak to us. May your spirit be here. Comfort where comfort is needed. Wrestle where wrestling is needed. And in the end, may peace be found at the foot of the cross in surrender. Set a watch before my lips and a guard before the door of my mouth, and I pray for a holy boldness as well, Lord, to say everything I should and hold back nothing. Now, Lord, I pray, send your Spirit to anoint ears and hearts, especially mine. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start this sermon different than I did the last one. I'm going to read you a few entries out of John Wesley's journal. If you'd like some great reading, go to the Wesley Center online, Google the Wesley Center, and you can read John Wesley's diary. I'm reading it for a specific reason. Uh, The closing hymn today is written by John Wesley. It comes directly from our scripture, Ephesians 6, and I want you to have a sense of what his life was like in the year he wrote the hymn, 17. 47. Now this actually comes from 1748 and actually I want to jump back to these readings. September 9th, 1947. I walked at five in the evening to the shattered room in Marlborough Street where a few people were met who did not fear what men or devils could do to them. Now the longer we read that's going to make a whole lot more sense. They did not fear what men or devils could do to them. The popish mob, encouraged and assisted by the Protestants, are insolent and outrageous that whatever street we pass through, it is up in arms. Just going to hear John Wesley preach, just John Wesley coming into town created a a mob experience, a riot. The mayor would assist us, but he cannot. The grand jury have had the plainest evidence of the riot laid before them, that a mixed rabble of papists and Protestants broke open our room at four and into the warehouse, stealing and destroying the goods to a considerable value. They beat and wounded several with clubs, tore away the pulpit, the benches, the window, and the cases, burnt them openly before the gate, swearing they would murder us all, yet it is much doubted whether the grand jury will find the bill. In other words, whether or not anybody will get repaid. But doth not the most high regard. And then he tells how he began his sermon. Let's go on to another entry. Sunday, September 13th. The mob waited for me on a bridge. We tried in vain to get a coach. We were therefore forced when it was dark to walk home another way without calling upon our Catholic friends. September 20. Returning, we were insulted by a gathering mob. When a Baptist came by and desired us to take shelter in his house. We stayed and breakfasted and left him quite happy in having protected us from the violence of the people. And one more 
Friday, October 30th, 1747. In our return from intercession, the prayer meeting, we were stoned for the length of a street or two. Charles Perinet interposed his back to screen me. Here I received the first blow since I came to Dublin. Our lodgings, the mob took their, at our lodgings, the mob took leave us without hurting either. And one more, I didn't realize this, for all the respect I have for Count Zinzendorf, this is not such a positive entry. December 4th, I passed an hour at Mr. Miller's, the Lutheran minister who favored me with the sight of Count Zinzendorf's famous declaration against my brother and me. In other words, Zinzendorf was warning everybody against Wesley. And likewise, his translation of the New Testament, we looked for the St. James epistle, but he was not to be found, the count having thrust him out of the canon by his own authority. Interesting. Now, the past week, I've had the opportunity to do a little reflecting on some statistical analysis regarding our denomination. I have to admit that I really did not plan to do this, but I found myself looking at least three, maybe four sets of statistics, and it troubled me greatly. It troubled me to the point that we're here today with a message entitled, Wrestle, Fight, and Pray, or Say Uncle. Now, I don't have to tell you, you don't need to be social scientists, that there is an open war on against the traditional Christian church. And if you think somehow the Seventh-day Adventists are left out of that, you better think again. Because the real end goal of this is to castrate the Seventh-day Adventist church and make them absolutely impotent at the time they are most needed and the message should go forward with power. Now, one of the songs we sang here in the praise time asked if culture was our friend. I'm here to tell you today at this hour, you must know, every father must know, every mother must know, that the worldly culture around us, which is now in our pocket and hard to avoid, is absolutely not our friend. It is an enemy of your children's soul. It is an enemy of some of your souls. It's an enemy of all of our souls, but some have found a way to keep it at bay. So... Not too long ago, I wrote to our education department in the Michigan Conference, and I asked for some statistics. Now, it's important, since there are a number of visitors here today, to know that you will find no greater supporter of Adventist education in the room than me. My very salvation was delivered at the hands of a Christian teacher. I did not want to go to that school. My mother forced me to go. It changed my life. I'm standing here before you because of that school and the discipleship I received. But just because I'm absolutely friend, supporter, strengthener of the hands of those who teach our children, does not mean that I can change the blatant, ugly, undesirable facts. So here they are. And it has really nothing to do with education. It just has to do with our churches. You cannot have a vibrant, living church school without a vibrant, living church. It is the discipleship of the parents first, the school second, and the church in cooperation with both that creates a community in which young people can actually grow up to become soldiers of Christ in an environment where society would like to make them perpetually addictive to a consumer mentality and a consumer desire level. Now... 
I'm just here to tell you right at the very beginning that something will have to change in the hearts of Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Adventism if we expect to have places to disciple our children a generation or two from now. So I asked for 30 years of statistics on the enrollment for children in the Michigan Conference. They had the last 10 years, they were willing to get me the 20 beyond that, which I really appreciated. And both the educational superintendent and myself both noticed something. And that is that about the turn of the millennium, we begin to see a very precipitous fall off in the census of our schools. In 1987, when I was finishing my college education, at the end of the next year, after my year of pastoral internship, there were 2,769 students attending Seventh-day Adventist schools in the state of Michigan. That number did not deviate an awful lot. You get all the way down to the year 2002, and it's still at 2,500. But from there forward, you see something happening which is startling. From 2,500 in 2002 down to the year 2019, 17 years, we see a loss of almost 1,000 students. That means every year, on average, one church school the size of a 50-church school-pupiled educational center is closing. Now, that's not happening. The truth of the matter is, is that the census in all of our schools just keeps shrinking. Now, when I look at the statistics for the North American division, they're not a whole lot different. Unfortunately, in 1999, there were 50,152 elementary students in Seventh-day Adventist schools. At the end of 2011, which is as far as this statistical sheet takes me, it had already dropped to 38,999. I wish I could say that it's different even locally. I'm holding in my hands now the statistics for the entire state of Michigan for this year. And I'm looking at it, and I see the exact same thing in almost every single school. Now that is grades 5 through 8 have about 15 to 20 percent more students in them. As a matter of fact, there are 448 students enrolled in grades 1 to 4 in the Michigan Conference. And there's 521 in grades 5 through 8. That's a 14 percent disparity. And so what you can expect to see in our Michigan schools, which is what you can expect to see in your Maryland school, in your Iowa school, and your Texas school and your California school is that over the next several years the census is going to drop by an average of about three percent a year and eventually you'll have to cut teachers eventually schools will close as a matter of fact I just found out yesterday of a school in Indiana where I pastored for 25 years a school was closing So, Pastor, tell us some more good news. Well, I'm going to. Take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. 
I'm here to tell you there's an all-on war out against traditional Christianity. There is a war on against people who believe in the inerrancy of the Word and a distinct holy lifestyle. There's a war on against piety and holy living. We tend to think of John Wesley as a saint who started the Methodist Church. We do not realize the price he paid, the trauma associated with a new, with dead bones coming to life. Think Ezekiel's vision. We do not understand the price that was paid to breathe life back into the Protestant Church. But this morning, I'm here to assure you, If we do not wrestle and fight and pray, it's only a matter of time as the devil puts us in his cultural headlock before we say uncle. Now, I don't plan to lose. I plan to go all the way to the kingdom. If you have your bulletin this morning, take your bulletin out. Let's look at that quote, the Reflecting Christ quote. I need to borrow some buddies. Open your bulletin up there. starts with the word if. Now for those of you that weren't English majors, that creates a conditional statement. If, if the church, you and me, us, will put on the robe of Christ's righteousness, withdrawing from all allegiance with the world, so there's the if, there is before her the dawn of a bright and glorious day. God's promise to her will stand fast forever. Truth, passing by those who despise and resist it, will triumph. Endowed with divine energy, it will cut its way through the strongest barriers and triumph over every obstacle. But if you think that's going to happen without wrestling and fighting and praying, you have another thing coming. And that's what we're going to look at. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 verse 10. This is Paul's last word to the church at Ephesus. Paul spent large amounts of time in Ephesus. One could make the case that it is the most significant place of labor. The book ends on this note. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. It says, finally. So if you've missed everything else, he says, pay attention. What I'm about to say really matters. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. I want to start right there because there's no sense putting the armor on if you're weak. There's no sense being winded by the time you get onto the battlefield only to be knocked down and taken out by the enemy. Finally, he says, be strong. Before they send you out on the front to fight for the United States Army, they put you through a boot camp to make sure that what's inside the Kevlar and the body armor is equal to the task. And there's no reason for us to look at the the sword of the word or the shield of faith if the arm that holds it up and the wrist that wields it can't handle it. So I had to ask myself as I started in this, so how do you become strong? Well, friends, it's not any different than it's ever been. Those of you that don't want to keep losing body mass, you go to the gym, you lift weights. Those of you that want some cardiovascular benefit, you put on the sneakers and you walk or you run. It's called discipline. It's called the right use of the will. It's called keeping your goal in mind and doing what you want to do. It's no different spiritually, but you've been told over the last generation that those aren't necessary anymore. That's not really the way, and you can have it your way. 
The truth of the matter is, your way will only lead you the wrong way unless your way is the chosen way of the Scriptures. Do you know how to be strong in the Lord? So I had to think about this for a little bit. What makes you strong in the Lord? You know, the devil's not afraid of a spiritual weakling. <laughs> and he's really not too terribly afraid of us until we become strong in the Lord. And praise the Lord, remember what the Scripture says. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. So in spite of everything we're going to read about what your participatory role is with Jesus in this battle, you need to know something. Jesus is your shield. Do not be afraid. You walk strong in the Lord and let Him take care of things. But how do you become strong? Well, number one, you become strong by your training, by your preparation, by your discipleship. Seventh-day Adventists believed what Jesus said. Any man that follows me should count the cost. You don't go to building a house without counting the cost. You don't go to war without making sure you're ready to go. We don't baptize people at the end of a service who we've met for the first time. We believe that when you go down into the baptismal tank, you are declaring that you would live or die for Christ, and you ought to know what the name Jesus means and who He is and what He taught. So we take our time. We believe that when you receive Christ, you enter into a saving relationship. And we believe that when you go into that tank, you are simply declaring like a marriage ceremony that you've thought about it, you've counted the cost, and this is what you want to do. It's important that your discipleship is proper. We study the Bible with people. We try to show them how to have a living walk with Christ. Because discipleship matters. As a matter of fact, the spirit of prophecy will say that many... She perhaps says all. I don't have the quote right in front of me. But she says, People who you will meet will bear the imprimatur. They will bear the mark of the person that discipled them. I want the people that I leave behind, that I led on a spiritual journey, that I baptized, I want them to be strong in Christ for the rest of their life. I want them to be soul winners. And I want them to be vibrant, beautiful, fountain-like Christians. I don't have to be in a hurry to put another notch in my baptismal belt that I can prove that I'm a soul winner. Christ is the soul winner. I get to be the reaper, and I'm going to let him grow at the pace he grows, and I'm going to reap the harvest when it's proper to reap it and allow them to be ready to be fruitful Christians as well. The second thing you need to remember if you want to be strong is that you have to submit. What's James say in chapter 4, verse 7? He says, Submit to God, act of the will. Resist the devil. And he'll flee from you. What a fantastic statement. But when I refuse to submit, oh, I want Jesus right by me to back me up. And Jesus says, excuse me, I want to live inside of you. I want to order all of your life, not just the parts you kind of want me to be in charge of. I'm either Lord of all or really Lord of nothing. Now that's my money, that's my schedule, that's my palate for my mind and my palate for my gut. That's everything. It's how I dress. It's who I hang out with. It's, it's everything. Now, as a young boy, I'm thankful to a Christian teacher who discipled me in these things and explained to me. And I gave my life to Christ and I let Him take control of it. And I'm still, by daily surrender, doing that. It's inconvenient sometimes. <laughs> it's wonderfully inconvenient. It starts out painfully inconvenient and usually ends up wonderfully inconvenient. Something I don't want to do or don't think I have the time to do, and God says, no, you need to make the time to do this. When I listen, I come away encouraged. Prayer. 
When I surrender my life to God, when I've been trained how to understand Him through Bible study, and I start talking to Him, you will never be strong. Don't bother putting the armor on. It doesn't make any sense to put on this doctrine and that doctrine and that way of living if you don't talk with God and you don't listen to what He says. Prayer is the breath of the soul. I've never known anybody who could be strong who has a compromised pulmonary function. You have to breathe. Breathe deep. You have to exercise. You can actually train your body to grab oxygen and use it better. You can actually protect your arterial system so that it delivers the supplies more effectively. Living prayer when a, with a living God renders vitality to the spiritual organism. God's Word. If you don't read it and you don't have the promises, I don't know how you could be strong. Those promises buoy me up when I feel like I'm sinking. They're life preservers when I feel discouraged. If I didn't have God's Word, I don't know where I'd be. God speaks and the molecules orient themselves to what He said. God calls it out and all of nature, animate and inanimate, that is subject to His direction, arranges itself to His statements. God's Word. We don't have time to read it. You will be a spiritual weakling. Don't bother putting on the armor of God. It won't do you much good. You'll try to swing the sword once or twice. You'll be winded and you'll be easy prey. How about a clear conscience? I'll tell you, there have been moments in my life when like David after he sinned, the hand of God is heavy on me. Now I'm not suggesting I sinned according to his uh, trajectory of failure to fight. If he would have been out fighting the battles of the Lord, he probably wouldn't have been laying with someone else's wife. But I'll tell you, there are moments when the spiritual pain of a guilty conscience is prompting us to bring our lives back to the cross so that our sins can be forgiven and the burden can roll off of us. Was it Richard the Lionhearted that said, I have the strength of ten men because my heart is pure? You keep it pure by staying close to Jesus. It's sullied by your own choices. But you keep it pure by turning back to Christ who has the ability to clear the record and clean the mind. Praise, another way to be strong. These songs we sang here this morning, you know, the song we're going to sing at the end, Wesley wrote it. Why did he write it? Because there were people looking to take his life. The story I'll share with you at the end, someone throws a stone at him big enough to take his breath away, and someone throws a stone at one of his riding companions big enough to knock him off his horse. Wrestle and fight and pray. That power of praise is the initial foray. It is the vanguard of our conflict, fellowship. I'll tell you, just between the services, I had a discussion with someone. They told me some bad news. It was so bad that as I walked down the stairs, one of our deacons saw me and said, Pastor, are you okay? I didn't tell him what the bad news was. It's not appropriate for me to do so. But he came and found me about 20 minutes later in my office to encourage me. And then he prayed for me. I'm going to tell you something. The Bible says two are better than one. And a third strand in the rope 
makes it almost unbreakable. When you miss the fellowship of this church and you fail to grow in spiritual bonding with the people around you, you are simply making yourself a second-rate soldier in the army of Christ. You'll never be a commando. You'll never have the special training that would allow you to be strong in the face of odds that are against you. Fellowship matters when you skip the prayer meeting, when you skip the Sabbath school, when you skip your... When you skip the extra events that are designed, the Vespers and the other things, you are simply making yourself weak. Service. 152 of us just got back from El Salvador this morning in the Sabbath school. You heard a little bit about it. I want to tell you something. I know of almost no one of those 150 plus people who went who did not come back with a greater sense of vigor to press forward the knowledge of the three angels around the world and to take their strength in finance and education and freedom to travel and make this world church better and stronger because of it. And what will it translate into? It will translate into stronger Seventh-day Adventist churches in the North American division. And lastly, simplicity. You already know it. But you know, living in the best educated, best financed phase of American life, you have a thousand opportunities to do all kinds of things. And what often gets neglected is your own spiritual life or the spiritual vitality of God's church. Every person who removes themselves from the mighty army of Christ is not only losing themselves, but they are causing loss to others. You don't come to church, friends, to get something only for yourself. You come to this church to worship the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and died to redeem you. And you come to this church to give strength and courage to other people whose hands need to be held up. You come to this church not as an act of personal convenience or personal self-aggrandizement. You come to this church to worship the living God and you are a part of an army. The problem is the army has all the luxuries in the world and it appears there's no fight going on anywhere. But I'm here to tell you like carbon monoxide seeping into your house silently, innocuously. It is sucking the oxygen out of the air and our institutions and our families and our people are slowly succumbing. Now I'm here to tell you today, you either wrestle, fight, and pray or say, uncle, it's either stand up and be counted on the name of Jesus Christ or just anticipate that eventually that headlock that the culture's got you in and the dissonance that comes between you, your conscience, the church, and the love of the world, you'll give in. You say, finally, all right, his ways are better. I'm surrendering this journey with Jesus. What a terrible thing. The thrill of being used by God. Put on the full armor, verse 11 says, so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces and this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So make sure you understand. When you stand up in the name of Christ, you are fighting the legions of evil fallen angels who are empowering, enabling, and joining the forces of darkness on this earth. And pretty quick, you ought to figure out you are no match. Isn't going to happen. Not going to win. What's at stake is your soul, the souls of others, the souls of those who haven't heard. 
It's a battle in which it is terribly unequal right from the very beginning, which is why verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord. Because putting on the armor won't be enough. You're going to need Jesus standing by your side. Stand firm, verse 14. Having gird your loins with truth. Why does this matter? Because truth is the diagnostician that keeps us honest at the foot of the cross and free. If I go to my doctor and he tells me something other than the truth in order to make me feel a little bit better, I don't know what my options are. I don't know how serious the condition is. I'm really not in charge of my own healing and my own destiny. The truth may be very unsettling. The truth may be very disturbing, but it is the truth that sets us free. I may recognize after hearing the truth that I'm angry at what was said. I don't like what was said. I may not even like the person who said it, which is a whole other problem. That's another truth to be reckoned with. But the truth is the diagnostician that allows me to know how to be properly in charge of my own destiny. I put on the belt of truth, whether it convicts me or comforts me. It is the truth that sets people free. Jesus' own words. Now that truth is always towed against the backdrop of the cross. The truth without the cross is not truth. It's abuse. But the truth with the cross is liberating. We tell the truth in the shadow of a cross with lives filled full of grace. But we do find a right time and the right way to tell the kind and appropriate for the time truth. We don't dump loads of truth on people who aren't ready to receive it. We share only what is right for the moment, but we don't mismanage the instrument that sets us free. It is truth. Now that very truth may align you or arraign you before the bar of justice. It may prompt you to have a conversation with somebody you don't want to talk with. It may be a child. It may be a spouse. And by the way, just because your children have reached the age of maturity doesn't mean that you're no longer a parent to them. You don't stop being a parent. You change how you parent. Until you don't think straight or you don't breathe, you are their parent. And nobody loves them like you love them. I was with a group of people this last week Someone was telling me about a man who desperately wanted his son to come back to the Lord. And whenever they got together, he talked about it. You can say it was a mistake. You can say it wasn't. I don't know. I wasn't there for all those details. But I do know this. The son never responded. But I know that if you never talk to them, the devil will be convenient for nobody else to talk to them too. And it can just slide into the shadowy recesses of the unimportant. The man died. A few months later, the son gave his heart to Christ and is an Advent believer today, an ardent supporter of the truth. The person telling me the story said, isn't that father going to have a wonderful surprise in that great getting up morning? Listen, if you are content to watch your kids wander off into lostness, they'll wander. There is a shepherd who is glad to shield them or move them away from the words of truth. I had an article that I picked up the other day in one of our magazines, and I love this church, but I was very disheartened by the title of the article. 
When your kids take a break from church. Now listen, I may take a break from cheese. And I may take a break from work. How would you feel if I said, your kids need to take a break from you? Should we start writing articles about kids taking a break from their parents? I want to tell you something. As enfeebled as the church is, it is the supreme object of God's regard. And it is not like a bad taste from some food you don't like. It is the instrumentality for the organized, prayed-over proclamation of Jesus Christ to a world that is dying. It is the institution that kept the collective conscience of this nation alive. And as it becomes impotent, we can see that the conscience is bending way over to humanism. Do what you want. It doesn't matter if a generation from now we have absolute chaos and barbarism and a total loss of civility. Do what you want. Kids don't need dads in their lives. Kids don't need two parents together. Men don't need to be faithful. Women don't need to be faithful. Live out your dreams. No matter what it does, I'm here to tell you, the church is a fortress in a revolted world and any disloyalty to it is disloyalty to Jesus Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Read the book of Ephesians earlier, chapter 1. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one body. Jesus is the head. We are the instruments to do. He directs, we obey. I'll have to go quickly through the rest of these Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Let me just ask you this. Is it too much work to go where the gospel is being proclaimed? This fall, in this very place, Monday night, September 23, we will join with dozens, maybe hundreds of other churches around this conference in the division that will be proclaiming Jesus on prophecy. A righteousness by faith orientation to the prophetic oracles of the book of Revelation and Daniel. Will you be here? In your, in, your, in your bulletin, there's a card. I want you to look at it right now. Take it out. You can see two men fighting. One is in the shadowy recesses of the darkness on the right. One is fighting with a backdrop of light. I want to thank our associate pastor in Lithotech for getting this to us. There's seven lines there. I'm here to tell you, if you know seven people who are no longer walking with Jesus, no longer coming to church, no longer wearing the armor, no longer strong in the Lord, put their names on this piece of cardstock, stick it in your Bible, and every morning when you get up to pray, you pray over those names, and I promise you, they will all be visited by the Holy Spirit to attempt to bring them to the place where the Word is spoken and life in Christ is reborn. You don't pray? You approach it casually? I don't know what to offer you. 
I know this, that during the last 40 days of prayer that this church had, one of my very own family members was visited by the Holy Spirit in a way they did not resist, and they gave their heart back to Jesus. If you don't wrestle and fight and pray, I don't know how we're going to take prisoners from Satan because he doesn't say, oh yeah, here's the key, take the shackles off them. No, Jesus has to show up and he has to say, would you like these chains broken? And the human being has to say, yes. And when Jesus shows up, do you think the devil stand back and say, well, here, yeah, have him. No, they say, what are you doing here? And they say, Ron sent me. Yeah, Pastor Kelly sent me. Friends, every time you pray, when you come with a heart humble, if it's not humble, ask Jesus to make it humble. When you come with a humble heart and you ask God to go in search of a lost one, it is His will. You can pray in confidence. I don't know how and when God's going to break the shackles off the people you love, but I do know this. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And these beautiful prophecies illuminate a God who can be loved. And on Monday night, September 23, you know, that's many months from now, I'm asking you to put it on your calendar. I'm asking you to start praying. I don't know when you're going to invite somebody, but I know they're going to get something in the mail. It'd be even better if it was prayed over before it got there, prayed over as it sat on their coffee table prayed over when you stopped by their house to say hey we have some meetings going on would you like to come your heart would be calibrated for discipleship this church would be calibrated for receiving them and the fellowship of the believers might be beyond anything we've ever known why because we prayed for the Holy Spirit to come down when Wesley would wander into a town he would go to the green and he would cry out ho come to the waters buy money without price bread and milk. They would gather by the thousands. Wesley's Methodism was not accepted by the state church. It was rejected by the Protestant ministers and it was hated by the papists. But I want to tell you, Wesley's Methodism changed the course of Christianity in the 1700s and beyond. And even today, Wesley's Methodism is in the news again as the battle rages over what it means to live a holy life. Let's keep going. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith. Friends, you get that faith by taking the first step. When I do what Jesus says and I'm honoring Him, He starts growing my faith. It's risky. You'll have a thousand reasons not to do it. You'll hear those fiery darts hitting the shield. You can't give that much money. You can't spend that much time. You don't know what to say to that person. You've never studied the Bible before with somebody and you can hear the fiery darts hitting the shield. And Jesus says, don't worry. I'm a shield to those who walk uprightly. You may want to peer over the shield, and bad idea. You're going to walk where you can't see, because that's what walking by faith is. You're listening. And Jesus says, keep going. It's for this corporate church, too. When we took steps to help build that church in Montana, or build those 10 churches in El Salvador, which turned into almost 20 with God's work, we were moving because we were listening, not because we dropped the shield to see what the terrain looked like. If you would drop the shield to see what the terrain looked like, you'd see the forces of hell aligned against you and all their guns pointed at me, little me. Jesus says, don't bother looking. Just walk behind the shield. Listen. This is the art of the Christian. They learn to cultivate the voice, hearing the voice of God. Put on the helmet of salvation, verse 17. Why? Because you have to know you're saved. 
You have to know you're in a saving relationship. Listen, when I get on these airplanes, I'm praying all the time, Lord, bless this airplane as it takes off. Lord, bless this airplane as it lands. Those are the two most dangerous times. I need to know that if something goes wrong, I'll wake up to see Jesus. Search your soul. But most of all, search the Word and the heart of God. If He loved us and gave us His Son, will He not with us, with Him also freely give us all other things? Can He not give us safety? If He doesn't give us safety, can He give us grace to endure? Absolutely. We have to know that by faith I receive the gift. You don't need to study it for years. A kindergartner can understand it. Jesus says, I paid it all. Could I have all of you? The answer is yes or no. When you receive Him, He washes your record, and from that moment forward, He's continually washing your heart. We're almost there. And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Friends, I love my New American Standard Bible. It's pretty worn. Actually, I bought another one just like it so that I could mark it the way this one is marked so that if anything ever happens, this is worth more than $1,000 to me. It can't be replaced. My life story, I took three and a half years to read this Bible slowly. It is marked and highlighted and written in and arrows across it. I learned more reading this Bible slowly in three and a half years than maybe I've learned in any other phase of my life. You could learn the same things because you could have the same teacher I had. His name is Jesus. But if you don't read it, Satan's like Goliath. He's got a big spear. He's got a big sword. He knows how to wield it. I need the sword of the Spirit. There's nothing like the Word of God to cut through the fog of, dis of, of confusion. Ambassador in chains is what Paul calls himself at the end of this. He says four times in verse 18 and onward, pray, be on the alert. As a matter of fact, Colossians 4 makes it clear that praying is how to be on the alert. On Wednesday, February 10th at 8 o'clock, I took to horse for Athlone. We were seven in company. This is 1748, and I rode mostly abreast. Someone overtook us running in great haste, and a one-horse man riding at full speed. So there they are, riding to this English city, and these people come running through their ranks from behind, and a man on a horse. What's the reason? We suspected nothing, and we rode on singing. Till within half a mile of the town, Mr. Samuel Handy and Jonathan Healy, so Handy and Healy, happened to be foremost, three or four yards out in front of the line. We were mounting a little hill when three or four men appeared at the top and bade us to go back. This is Wesley. We thought them in jest till the stones flew. Jay Healy was knocked off his horse with a stone, fell backwards and lay without sense or motion. Handy 
setting spurs to his horse, charged through the enemy, and immediately turned upon them again. There were only five or six ruffians on the spot, but we saw many others gathering from all sides. I observed the man who had knocked down Healy, striking him on the face with a club. I cried to him to stop, which drew him upon me and probably saved his life. One more blow. They had gathered against our coming great heaps of stones of which was sufficient to beat out our brains. How we escaped them God only knows and our guardian angels. I had no apprehension of their hurting me even when one struck me on the back with a large stone which took my breath away. He's forty-some years old. One struck Mr. Force on the head at whom Mr. Handy made a full blow, so he's trying to save a friend. He turned and he escaped, yet it knocked him down and at present disabled him. So you have to get the picture now. One of their companions is laying in a field of blood. And as he's laying there, the rest of them are just trying to get to the city and they're discussing whether or not they're going to go back or go. And this is what he says. I asked if we should leave our brother in the hands of his murderers. So we rode back into the field which our enemies had quitted and the Protestants began to rise among them. The man who wounded Healy was the priest's servant and he rode the master's horse. So the man that's laying there was wounded by the priest. He was going to finish the work with his knife swearing desperately that he would cut him up. Now, I don't believe any of us have had anything like this on the way to church recently. When a poor woman from her hut came to his assistance and swore as stoutly that, she, that he should not cut him up, the man who was ready to cut him up half killed her with a blow of Healy's whip. And yet she hindered him. You go, ladies, you go. Till more help came. One Jameson, a Protestant, ran from the sidelines with a pitchfork and stuck it into the clerk's shoulder. The bone stopped it. The man made a second push at him. So in other words, the man with the pitchfork was going to do some murdering. And one of the previous guys who had been knocked down, one of uh, Wesley's companions, stopped him. The hedges were all lined with papists who kept the field till they saw the dragoons or the soldiers coming out of Athlone. Then they took to their heels and Mr. Handy after them. In the midst of the bog, they seized the priest's servant, carried him to Athlone and charged the constable with him who immediately let him go. These Methodists got no justice. Their stuff was pillaged and burned and ruined. They were beaten and nearly killed and there was no justice in England for the Methodists. A Protestant met him and beat him unmercifully. But he escaped at last and fled for his life. We found Healy, the guy who was going to be cut to pieces, in his blood at the hut, whither the woman and her husband had carried him. He recovered his senses at hearing my voice. This is Wesley speaking. We got him to Athlone and had him blooded and his wounds dressed. The surgeon would take nothing for his pains. The people of the town expressed their great indignation at our treatment. The soldiers flocked about us. They'd been ordered by their officers to meet and guard us, but we came early, which prevented them. 
And we should have found an army of Romans ready to receive us. The country, it seems, knew beforehand by design, for the papists made no secret of it. But by the providence of God, none of us or our enemies lost their life. I walked down to the market house, which was filled by a third of the congregation. You might give up and not go to church after all this. <laughs> I removed a window in a ruined house which commanded the marketplace. And 2,000 hearers gave diligent heed while I strongly invited them to buy milk and wine without money and without price. The congregation waited on us, and many of them out of our town. We marched very slowly for the sake of our patient till we came to the field of battle. This is where it all happened on the way in. It was stained with blood abundantly. We halted and sang a song of triumph and praise to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen? And here we sent back our guard and went on our way rejoicing. The scriptures say in Isaiah 59 verse 19, when the enemy comes in like the flood, the Spirit will raise up a standard. What I want you to know, friends, is that the enemy has already come in like a flood. A few years ago, this Christian nation voted that people of the same gender could establish a home and call it marriage. Now the new battle lines are whether or not I want to be respectful because these are all children of God. But now the new battle lines are whether or not you're a man or a woman based on whatever you think or based on biology. And it's not enough that everybody could have their own right to think about themselves however they want. It's that the rest of the society must bow down and acknowledge the legitimacy of this confusion. If you don't think the enemy has come in like a flood, you're the frog in the kettle. But I have preached this sermon today so that you could understand something. According to the book of Zechariah, when Christ is in our midst, we can still take prisoners of hope from prisoners of darkness, despair, confusion, and discouragement. But, lest you be confused, the Christian church is losing the battle. The Adventist church in Western societies is also losing the battle. And it will not be won until we decide that making a relationship with Christ primary and becoming strong in Christ is combined with the weapons of our warfare, which are mighty for pulling down strongholds of error. And when that happens, if you think that conflict happens in a dead calm, if you think the great controversy is going to go on without rocking the boat, you need to think again. 
Jesus said, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to set the, the members of a man's household at enmity with himself. And he goes on to say, he who does not basically follow me with all my heart, who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now the beauty is, when Jesus takes you from darkness to light, he begins using you to bring others. Don't be afraid, friends. Today's a day to follow our Lord Jesus Christ, but you need to be reminded. Put those seven names on your card and start wrestling and fighting and praying against the principalities and the power for Jesus to set them free and to set us free on the journey. There are going to be no casual answers to prayer because praying changes us while we're praying for God to change someone else. But I'm going to tell you something. Wesley, in one of his diaries, sometimes he'd speak five, six times a day. He said, I've never felt so alive in the morning and so dead at night. All used up. And he also say, God sets me on fire and the people come to watch me burn. And he also said to his disciples when they went out and preached, did anybody get mad? No. Did anybody get converted? No. Then maybe you need to think about a different line of work. Friends, there's people only you can reach. But I'm going to tell you something. The power of this truth will cut through all the fortresses of darkness and break all the shackles of despair and addiction and slavery. But it will be always only ever in the name of Jesus. So we can turn the tide if we press together and wrestle and fight and pray. You'll recognize the words in the third verse of our closing hymn. Yeah. 
I know you're speaking to hearts today that people should respond. If they know there's things they're doing that are making them weak, I know you're calling them, Lord, to lay them aside in your strength and become strong. So I'm praying, first of all, for that group, Lord, all of us, whatever might be hindering us, lay it, lay it aside every weight and run the race with Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Him. So I'm praying for this group first, Lord. Speak to their hearts just now, and may they in this moment of silence be able to articulate what you're saying back to them in a posture of surrender. I'm praying, Lord, for the fathers and the husbands and the men of this church and the young men, that soldiers of Christ could arise. And of course, not just the men, but as heads of household, the men first. And in the shadow of their newfound commitment and faith, their wives and their children with them. But should some choose not to go with them, I'm praying, Lord, give them devotion to you, which could create devotion in their family members for you. As the Spirit brings their living example and your living word home, to their family members' hearts. Lord, there may be some men listening to me right now who know they need to say, Jesus, I will follow you differently from this moment and I will make a solemn commitment to you. I pray, Lord, may those men right now who know that's the call simply acknowledge it in their own hearts. And I'm praying, Lord, every single person here would make a new commitment to meet you in the morning, go with you through the day, and say at the end of the day, all day long I've been with Jesus and it has been a wonderful day. I've climbed just one step higher in that good old-fashioned way. I have spoken words of kindness. And Lord, you know if I've done wrong, I will go and make it right so I could testify tonight. I've been with Jesus all day long. Forgive us, Lord, from accepting simply a cultural Adventism. Send your Spirit back into our midst. And may we wrestle on behalf of each other, maybe even occasionally wrestle with each other. May we fight in the name of Jesus with the weapons of our warfare. May we pray and may we be more than conquerors, I ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen.